Ephesians. I am so excited about this book. It is exciting. Uh, this is our series is Ephesians Made New to Live New. Uh, throughout the book of Ephesians, there's a, a balance between uh, what God has done, what kind of new creation he has done in us, um, and then how that translates into a new life of, of Christian love and service and mutual, um, and mutual edification. And so we're going to hit that uh, starting today. The, uh, the first uh, thing we're going to do is actually have a slight mini-series. Uh, I'm calling it Get the Big Truth First. It's because, as you'll see when we start reading this book, if you don't know it already, wow, it is just chock full. The very first 14 verses of, of Ephesians are just loaded, loaded with God's truth. And I just don't think we can do justice to them unless we first get a big overview of what's happening in these first 14 verses, and then over the, and which is what we'll do today, and then over the next couple of weeks we'll drill down on each of what are going to be three major things that Paul is confessing in the first 14 verses of this uh, book. And so this week is an overview. The following three weeks are going to be hitting three major themes that um, I'm going to bring out today in today's sermon. Um, you'll notice uh, during the reading of, of the text, I've made a few translation edits to the New King James. I'm not going to address them today, but I will address them in the coming three weeks. We will get down deep into the text, and we're not going to we're not going to leave it behind. But right now, I really want us to get kind of the 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 um, overhead, you know, bird's eye view of what's happening in this book and in this section, so that when we move forward, it'll uh, we'll have a chance to uh, to get into the details um, then. Let's uh, stand and let's read uh, the first 14 verses of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints, the holy ones who are in Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spirit-inspired spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons or children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. In him, Jesus, we have ransom through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us all in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in God's master plan, when the time was right, he might sum up the whole cosmos, the whole universe in the Messiah Christ. That is everything in heaven and on earth in Jesus. In him we also have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. And Ephesians, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Amen. You may be seated. It's absolutely cosmic 
If you notice, it was a prayer. Those first 14 verses, they'd be, well, the first three starts, blessed be. Paul's worshiping as he's writing. It's so big that it's hard to get our heads around. But I want to suggest to you uh, right now that if you don't get this big truth first, then nothing else in our lives, in the world, nothing else makes sense. This is the big truth. I love this quote. I just found it. Get the big truth first. If you get the big truth, the small truths will accumulate around it. Let them be magnetized to it, drawn to it, and then cling to it. Uh, St. Ray Bradbury, uh, just a faithful... Well, he was, a, he was a nominal Christian, so know that. Uh, he's actually writing, he's writing about, uh, he's writing about writing. He's talking about the challenge of getting um, a novel that works, a great piece of art, a great, uh, great novel. Now granted, he's a writer, so he gets a little mystical about the way that he's talking. Anytime you talk to writers and they start talking about their craft, you realize they are artists, or at least they see themselves that way. Uh, and, but he's, he's trying to explain what, what it is that, that captures the heart, the mind, the soul even, in great writing. And he says, the writing has to have a big truth. It has to have the one thing that makes everything else make sense. It has to have that one thing that catches you and holds you. And then once you have that thing, the little truths, the small truths that you tell in the, in the course of that story, they find their home there. It's, it's interesting how he uses that, that metaphor of, a, of magnetism. It's like the small truths get sucked up into this big truth. If you've read great works, great novels, you know what this is like. My favorite novel of all time is The Brothers Karamazov. And what's so crazy about that, I mean, here's a book that's, you know, it's huge, it's, it's long. I can't get through it anymore because there's too much going on. Uh, but the big thing at the center of this, of this book is not, is not a murder mystery. It is a murder mystery. There is a murder. There is confusion about who the murderer is. There are three brothers who seem like they might be suspects. But that's not the big truth. At the center of the brothers Karamazov is a question. A question by a Russian man who lives a Russian life, a life that is torturous um, and dangerous. It's filled with um, lack, famine. Uh, Dostoevsky himself was a, was a gambling addict and was in terrible debt. He was at one point put uh, up in front of the firing line by the czar who uh, then had them shoot, but there was no bullet in the gun. And so he thought he was going to die. He was literally looking at the barrel of a gun, seeing his death, seeing his life pass before his eyes, and then click, and there was no bullet. And this man looks at the world and says, how can this place be so awful and God be so real? That's the big truth. And everything else that happens in that novel is centered on that question, answering that question, learning about that question, prying apart. There's little stories about this person and that person and they're all woven in and out. And, and, and through it all, through it all, there's the big truth. How can the world be such an awful place and yet God be so real? That's what big truths do. They capture the heart, the mind, the soul. They elevate us. But if there's big truths, there are also small truths. Small truths are the little stories that we intersect with, that we believe, that we live. Small truths are what we tell ourselves all the time. They're the things that occupy our thoughts. They're the things that occupy us day in and day out. Now, I don't want to belittle small truths because small truths are still true. They're important and they give structure to our day. It's, I'm not gonna, I don't want to knock them. 
And yet, they're also small. And when I say small, I don't mean that they're not important. I mean that they don't make sense. This is in your note sheets. Small truths don't make sense without the context provided by the big truth. It's all just a bunch of stories unless you have the one story, as we sang in that song earlier, Jesus' story. A couple of examples of small truths, some things that, you, that I would, just to give you some content to what I mean by small truth. How about this one? Um, you're watching the news and you're thinking, man, if people would just start living like Jesus, this world would be a lot better. That's true. I agree with that. But I think it's also a little bit small. I don't think it makes sense outside of a larger context. Uh, another one, um, I need to remain faithful to God. You're facing temptation. You have a strong desire to do whatever it is that, um, that, that gets your goat. And, and, and you're th- but you remember, I need to remain faithful to God. That is a true truth. It is important, but it won't make sense without a larger context. If I improve my relationship with God, my marriage can get better. My relationships will improve. True, but abstracted from a a bigger context, it has no real genuine meaning. Uh, One that's uh, occupying, I know, Neil's heart and mind these days is, and you might think it's about Knoxville, it's not. The number one thing in in Neil's uh, world right now is the election in uh, 2016, uh, Neil has some very strong political feelings, and uh, and he's he's really really pumped up. Who's your who's your guy? I mean, is it is it Trump? You like Trump? You, Bernie? You like Bernie? Okay, all right. Well, you can you can talk to me. You can find out about that. But you might go about your day, and it might be structured. It might be structured. This election is important, and you know what? Spiritual realities are involved in this election in this nation. True, I agree with you. But you got to have a bigger story. Well, that one won't make sense. Interestingly enough, all those examples I just gave are in the book of Ephesians. We're going to be looking at every single one of them over the next uh, however long this series takes. But they're isolated, and they don't make sense apart from Ephesians 1, 1 to 14. A little bit of background in Ephesians. Uh, Paul doesn't know these people very well. He actually spent quite a long time in Ephesus, but by the time he's writing this letter, uh, he's no, he hasn't been there in a long time. And the church, in his absence, has exploded. And so Paul is he's, he's not quite familiar with these people, but since he was the one who started the church, he, he has a good sense. He's betting. He's betting that they're on the same page with him. On, on a number of issues. And that's what this, this worship uh, is doing. It's Paul is putting the Ephesians and us on the same page. Now, um, like I said, just the, just the forest this week, I mean, there, you, you, you read it with me, and you were like, ah, oh, there's a lot going on there. Agreed. We're just going to get the contours today. So let's look. Let's look for the big truth that Paul uh, is teaching. Um, starting in verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as children, sons, by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. I've picked out just a couple of terms there, um, because if you're Paul, and you're in, an ancient, in the ancient Near, uh, Near East, and you're familiar with who Paul is, and you're familiar with the stories of Israel, these words jump out to you. Chose. We know that Israel was chosen by God. 
Israel was the first. Israel was the first uh, people chosen by God. God calls them his special people. He even calls them his special possession, which um, is interesting that Paul uses that language uh, later. Israel is God's son, his firstborn, sometimes uh, Israel's called in, in, the, uh, in the Old Testament. And, and, and it's interesting, Israel is called by God, not because God thinks that Israel's great, because Israel proves time and again that Israel's not great. Uh, they're call, uh, Israel's called by God because God has a special desire. He has a special desire to make one people in the world, one people, holy and blameless. Why does he want to do that? Notice that holy and without blame. Uh, This is language from the Old Testament. Holy and blameless. It's so important for God to find a people and make them holy and blameless because if he does that, if he does that, God knows what will happen. It's exactly what happens uh, during Solomon's reign. The people of the world come and they look and they say, this God is God. These people know the real God. Because of the way they conduct themselves, they're blessed. The way that they live, they honor him. And, and, they're, and they're raised up. You might remember the language, a city on a hill, is uh, the way that sometimes uh, even the United States has been thought of uh, in, in the past. Because it's following God, being holy, being blameless, the world is drawn to it. And as a result, as a result, God himself is ultimately glorified. The chosenness of Israel is meant to bless the world. God also says that he has adopted Israel. Uh, there's fascinating language in the Old Testament where um, God will uh, sort of look at, at Israel as, as, as a child that's been exposed, um, left for dead. And then God comes along and scoops that baby up and says, you're mine, and I'm going to make you beautiful. That's the language of adoption. And here it is. Paul's using it. And so as we're reading this text, we should be thinking in the back of our minds, this is Israel's story. This is the story of the Old Testament, but this isn't the Old Testament. We're Ephesians. We're Gentiles. We're Coast Bible Church. Uh, with the exception of Elias, we're, we're all Gentiles here. And yet Paul is, is, is characterizing us as the people of Israel. And that should give us the very first part of the big truth. And that is this. The Father has chosen us in Jesus, the King The Father has chosen us in Jesus, the King. It's Israel's story all over again. And for those of you who are theologians, you might be hearing uh, a term in the back of your minds that's been very uh, influential and powerful in Christian tradition, and that is the language of election or predestination. And that's exactly what Paul's talking about. Uh, And so we're going to spend an an hour talking about that next week. Uh, so, so if you're, if you're a theologian and you want to know about election and predestination and, and how what Paul is saying um, impacts our, our thought about God's chosenness, um, eternal destiny, um, our free will, uh, the, the influence of grace, uh, come back because we'll do that. But today, today, uh, let's just know that the Father has chosen us in Jesus the King. Back to the text, verse 7. Verse, verse seven in Him... Uh, We have ransomed through his blood the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself. That the master plan, when the time was right, he might sum up the whole universe, the whole cosmos in Christ. That is everything in heaven and on earth in him. I pulled out this language, uh, I highlighted it for you. 
ransom, blood, the whole universe. If you're, uh, if you're in the ancient Near East and you hear Paul using these terms, you're immediately thinking of Israel's story again. See, first God chose Israel. He said, Israel, you're my special possession. But then something happens. Israel woke up one day and Israel was enslaved. Slaves in Egypt. This is the language of Exodus. When we say ransom, we're not, uh, the, the term c- could be understood to mean like a payment um, for, uh, for something. It, it can also mean um, what you might do at a pawn shop where uh, you, you've hawked your guitar and then you come in and you make a payment and you get your guitar back. Um, that, that's the language that Israel uses to describe its experience in slavery in Egypt. Egypt held Israel captive. The Lord, Yahweh, ransomed them free. And what with blood, I mean, you should hear the language of Passover here, the blood um, over the doorpost saying, these ones are safe. These ones are safe and they're going to be set free. That's the language Paul uses to talk about salvation. You see, at the beginning of the story, uh, when Israel was doing it, it was a physical slavery. It was, it was bondage. Paul has identified and has recognized that even after being freed from slavery, people were still kept in spiritual slavery, bondage to sin. And he says, we have in Christ a new exodus, a new liberation, a new freedom. And this time it's not just from worldly powers, although in a sense it is, it's from demonic powers. It's from the power of sin in our life, the power that oppresses us and forces us, as Paul sometimes says, to do things we rather than wish we wouldn't do. That's what we've been freed from. Uh, the end there, um, sum up the whole cosmos in Christ. You see, Israel, because of its sla- after it, it was released from slavery, it was supposed to be this holy and blameless people. It was supposed to be an image, a summing up of the whole universe before God. Spiritual realities, physical realities, known in this people by their holy and blameless conduct. Israel didn't make it. Israel, didn't fa- Israel failed. And yet, in Christ, everything Israel was meant to be Spiritually, physically, everything is summed up in one person. The Father has chosen us in Jesus the King. The Father has delivered us from bondage through Jesus the King. The once for all sacrifice whose blood ransoms us from sin and death for all time. It's Israel's story. Israel was chosen. Israel was delivered. But this time it's spiritual. And theologians, if you hear a doctrine of salvation, that's what this is. And so we're going to talk about the doctrine of salvation two weeks from now. You should come back. It'll be great. We'll we'll nail down some more of that language. It'll be fun. Back to the, so the Father has chosen us. Father has delivered us. Verse 11, in him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. 
your inheritance is what's reserved for you. It's saved up. It's waiting for you. And at a certain time, a sad time for most of us, you'll come into it. Paul's thinking about the church in Ephesus having an inheritance, something that's saved up, reserved for them, that they're going to get. Listen to that language, sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Promise. If you're remembering Israel's story, you remember the promised land in Deuteronomy 6.3. That having chosen the people and having delivered them from, from bondage, God promised to send them into the promised land. A land of freedom, a land of abundance, a land of shalom peace. In the same way that God carried the people in the wilderness with manna from the the skies, or from quail, uh, quail in the skies and manna on the ground, the Spirit has been promised to carry us to a promised land. A land where we'll receive our inheritance. And we know that that's real. We know that it's true because we have this Spirit living in our lives and in our community. And if we're attentive to that Spirit, we know that we are secured. We're held fast, and nothing can pry us free. We are guaranteed to go from here to there, to the promised land. That, that language, redemption of the purchased possession, it, it, it's the language of a down payment. Uh, when you go and you're going to buy a house, um, you, you put a, a hefty down payment. And once you've given that down payment, the people that, who are selling it know you're serious. They know that you're going to come back with the rest of the money. You're invested. God's down payment on the Ephesians and on us is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of promise. And because we have that Spirit, we know that God will not leave us and he will come back and carry us to the conclusion of all things. The Father has chosen us in Jesus the King. The Father has delivered us from bondage through Jesus the King. The Father has secured us for the promised land by the Spirit of Jesus the King. Theologians, you may be hearing some doctrines there. Doctrines of of eternal security. A doctrine of, of heaven or eschatology, the end times You may be even hearing a doctrine of reward for those who are faithful. Come back in three weeks. We'll drill those down. We'll nail them. But remember now, for now that the Father has chosen us, he has delivered us, and he has secured us for the promised land. It's worth thinking about what this story hinges on. This big truth, this, this chosenness, this deliverance, this security, what's it, what's it hinge on? It all makes sense if we remember that our Father is the unchanging God of Israel. Of Israel. This may not, this may not uh, have the same ring in our ears that it did in the ancient Near East, but that's, that's okay. In the ancient world, you know, there were lots of gods. There were lots of kings. Caesar was a god. There were um, little statues that promised good harvest, fertility. Um, they, had, they had statues for everything. They had lots of different gods. Israel is unique in that she claims that her god is god of gods, king of kings, lord of lords. Israel is unique in that she claims that her god is active, involved, faithfully committed, 
that her God isn't actually just concerned about her, but is concerned about the whole world. Yes, you Gentiles included. And Paul's story, his big truth says, you need to understand that your God is not Caesar, and he's not, you know, fertility this, and he's not thunder that, and he's not hail, and he's not war. He's not any of those things. He is God of gods, King of kings and Lord of lords. And because that's the case, you know that he is true to his word, and he will not give up on you. He is the faithful God, the delivering God, the choosing God, the securing God. And did you notice, all throughout this text, there's this back and forth. God has done this in or through our Lord Jesus Christ. I highlighted a number of times, in Him. This all happens in Him. Our God, our Father, is the unchanging God of Israel. Our King is Jesus, God's Son. I've used the word king to try and bring out, I think, what Paul is trying to get at when he calls Jesus Lord Jesus Christ. It's funny, we've turned Christ into, well, a curse word, but also a a proper name. It's like, if you're going to send a letter to Jesus, you would Mr. Jesus Christ, you know, Nazareth or wherever. That's kind of how we think of the word. And we're not the only ones. The the early church actually did this too, uh, because the early church was not familiar with um, Israel's theology of a Messiah. It was weird to them. But if we're going to talk about a Messiah, and we're going to talk about a Lord, probably the easiest way for us to get our heads around it, and probably the way the early church understood it, is to think about it as a king. A king in an important way. Not just, not just a king in the sense that um, we should obey him, although that too. A more important thing, and I think what Paul is bringing out here in this section with the in him, in him, in him, through him, is that the king represents the people. We can think about it this way. Um, We know the story of David and Goliath in the Old Testament. Um, In that story, uh, David, he hasn't become king yet, and that's one of the ironies of the story, but he has been anointed king. He's he's the one anointed, which is Messiah. So he's he's the the Messiah of Israel at the time. Um, And he's been anointed. He's going to become king. And uh, he's there, and I think he's like a, a servant at the time, or he's helping out uh, Saul carrying his armor or something like that. And, um, and Saul, who is the actual king, is hiding in, in a tent because Goliath is so scary and strong, not acting as a king. And David, fulfilling his kingly duty, says, That's it. This can't stand. And so he gets his sling, and he drags that sword. And they, they walk out in single combat, right? So all the Philistines are lined up. And all of Israel is lined up. And David walks out. And we imagine him as maybe a teenager, a young man. Um, hot-headed, uh, but, but young and, and slight. And then we hear Goliath, a monster, a mammoth of a man, walk out from the ranks. And David winds up. And he takes out that guy. And he chops off his head. And Israel defeats the Philistines. Yeah, David did it. But Israel gets the credit. David represents in himself and in his actions the whole people. The whole country. Because he's the king. And that's what kings are supposed to do. Our king is Jesus, God's son. And our king... In his own election, 
in his own deliverance and in his own security and his promise secures all those things for us. He's won a battle for us. It's not Goliath and David anymore. It's sin, death, and the enemy, Satan. And Jesus, like David, has gone out and swung... Well, I guess he was crucified, but slayed that enemy. And because he's our king, because we've trusted in him, he does it all for us. It's our victory. We get the benefit of being God's chosen people. We get the benefit of having his deliverance from sin and death. We get the benefit of an eternal security knowing that we are safe in God's hands and that we will inherit all the good things that he has for us for all eternity. Because we've got the right king. Brothers and sisters, our small truths about politics and our marriage and our ethics They need to be nestled into this big truth of God's free grace. That God, our Father, has chosen us, delivered us, and secured us for the promised land in Christ our King. Everything makes sense when you're embedded in that story, in that truth. Get the big truth first. If you get the big truth, the small truths will accumulate around it. Let them be magnetized to it, drawn to it, and then cling to it. Brothers and sisters, reflect on that truth. And then let the small truths of your life get drawn to it, impacted by it, changed by it, influenced by it. That language is so powerful that Paul uses. The language of freedom, of liberty, of a ransom. Paul's small truth, his day-to-day, when he's writing this letter, is prison. Paul spends his days deprived of food and water, of cleanliness, friendship, feasting. It's all been taken from him. That's his small truth. And his big truth, the one that transforms that, is that God has chosen me. He has delivered me. And he has secured me for the promised land. Let's pray. Father, we come to you a people of small truths. True truths, important truths, but still truths that need to be set into the big truth. God, we come as people concerned about health, marriage, death, ethics, politics, children, money. God, let us be people who reflect day in and day day out on you as the Father who has chosen us in Christ Jesus our King, who has delivered us from the bondage of sin and death in Christ Jesus our King, and who has secured us for the promised land by the Spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ the King, in whose name we pray, amen.